Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And as you know, we sometimes shuffle through our team of psychiatrists and psychologists. Today, I'm introducing you to Adam Stern, whose book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training, is one of the most riveting books that I've read about the field of psychiatry. In it, Adam recounts his four-year psychiatry residence at Harvard Medical School as we go on psychiatric rounds, as we grapple with imposter syndrome, as people navigate their personal lives from very, very sick to sometimes back to well and sometimes not so much. It's a phenomenal read, and I really encourage you to read Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Hey, Adam, it's so good to see you. Hey, thanks so much for having me and for those really kind words about the book. First of all, I often think about like what it takes to write a memoir, and it's so much time. So how did you work this out with all of your busy, busy schedule and your patients and all of the teaching at your institution? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the timing of it was really interesting and uh, sort of strange because we were all set to write this book with the publisher and then the pandemic hit and suddenly work was disrupted and childcare was disrupted and we had a makeshift office in a room that would eventually become the baby's room and you know all these things were uh, in flux. And what I needed to do, the only way I could possibly get this book written was to commit to writing, you know, half an hour to an hour every day. Mm -hmm. I, I told myself, I don't care if what I write today is any good or yeah. needs a lot of editing or, <laughs> or is, is, is great, but I just have to write it. I have to do the time of writing and the effort of taking the time to write. And that was the only way I could maintain momentum and tell the story. And then, of course, over months and months, fine tune the story with editors, et cetera. As a treating physician and going through the pandemic yourself and recognizing the stressors on you, both with what you're dealing with with your patients and also your own quarantining and isolation, how did you cope with the last 18 months? That's an interesting question, too because I feel like we've all tried our best to find ways to go forward through the challenges, right? And so in thinking about my own personal and professional coping strategies, a lot of it has involved finding other ways of connecting with people. One of the unexpected but but positive things that the pandemic has brought is a reconnection with lots of old friends because connecting with people virtually like this is now just part of life. An old group of my college friends, we get together every week now. And it's been a really nice thing that probably wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic has brought so much tragedy into our lives. And at the same time, there are little things about it that have been useful. So even the idea of doing virtual sessions with patients, patients no longer have that obstacle of driving into the city and parking and paying for parking and all of those things. The, uh, the no-show rate in the Department of Psychiatry is way down because patients, all they have to do now in most cases is just log on. Oh, that's awesome. That's really wonderful news. As a personal aside, I was working as a journalist when I was going through my own crisis with my family and their mental health struggles. And I kept saying to this physician, this was probably, gosh, I don't know, 12 years ago, is there any way we could just do this over the phone? Or is there any way we could do this on a video chat? And, and I remember her just completely no. There's just no way we will ever change and do that. You have to come. 
But the added stress of driving across the city, finding parking, getting in there, getting out before I got a ticket, it was just like <laughs> almost too much. So I really yeah. take to heart what you're saying. So let's dig into the book. You begin by talking about your father and your brother and this whole family of physicians and how you decided to do psychiatry rather than go into a primary care or another type of role. Talk to us about why that happened and how that still plays out in your dynamic. Right, absolutely. Um, I've been interested in psychology and the mind for really as long as I can remember. I was really interested in um, the uh, psychology class in my high school, for example, and I majored in psychology in college. And it at first, I thought of those things as separate. I was going to go and be a doctor like my father, and I was uh, going to major in psychology because I enjoyed it and found it interesting and captivating and fascinating. And um, it wasn't until really I was about halfway uh, through med school when I looked back and noticed that the, the coursework that I found most engaging and appealing was the brain and behavior kind of uh, academic work and the rotations that I found most uh, engaging were, were, was psychiatry. And, and I thought about that a long time because I wasn't drawn to psychiatry in initially because I, it wasn't in the same corner of medicine that I knew from my father's practice. But what drew me uh, eventually was this idea that it's the field that storytelling and the patient's character, what they, how, what's important to them, how they define themselves, those are the qualities that are most important in psychiatry, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said to myself, if I'm going to have a long career in this field, I better enjoy, I better go into the part of the field that, that I think will be most, um, I don't know, uh, captivating, inspiring, you know, that draw to really try to connect with the patient's uh, is so important. It's really essential to do a good job, I think. I've come to the realization when I'm talking about mental health with people that people can be all along the spectrum of mental health, but if they don't perceive their problems as being sick, then they are really much better off than a person who might be much healthier, but who perceives him or herself as being sick. I find that super fascinating. So your gearing then is I'm going to help them get perspective on what it is they're going through, right? Right. You know, in, in responding just a little bit to what you just commented on, it reminds me of something I've still, over the years, I've had trouble coming to terms with, which is the part of psychiatry that's in, uh, devoted toward involuntary treatment or treatment of people who either don't want to be treated or don't have insight to their illness. And that is something that I've wrestled with because it's a part of the job, you know, it's something I've, I do and have, have had to do uh, in my training. It's in the book, uh, my sort of discomfort with the idea of hospitalizing people when they don't want to be in treatment. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I so much enjoy uh, more when a patient comes to me and says, this is the problem I'm having. Do you know, can we talk about ways that I might be able to, to feel better uh, or to achieve things in my life in a different way that, that, I'm, that I'm doing? Yeah. I like that kind of work more. It's more what I focused my career on. And it's something that I still struggle with, that idea of the burdens that society places on, you know, psychiatric physicians and psychiatric caretakers and, and therapists of all of all varieties, you know, versus that idea of like the television psychiatrist with the in the New Yorker cartoon, you know, with the couch looking out a, a big window kind of thing. Yeah, trying to soothe the worried well, right? Right. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, 
I can get lost in rabbit holes with people I admire, but I'm curious whether or not you think you have better insight or outcomes with the person who might be anisognostic versus somebody who comes to you willingly for advice. Do you see a difference in how well they do? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I've ever really thought about that before, and I don't have any data, I can tell you that but I'm going to start paying attention. I'd love yeah. to, to let you know in a year or so and, yeah. and let you know if I, if I noticed anything. One of the things that I've ended up subspecializing in is a very biologically oriented treatment. Mm. And so one of the things that drew me to that, it's this thing, transcranial magnetic stimulation yeah. or TMS for short. And one of the things that drew me to it was I liked the idea that it was something where the device would be turned on. All the patient had to do was come to the sessions. We would do the technical work and their brain would be ideally biologically tweaked in such a way that it would help their depression, right? That was, that's the premise. And I liked the idea of that because if I mastered the technical aspects, I wouldn't have to worry about your interpersonal work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What I'm I sure found fine with the other as well. As well, thank you. What I, what I found though, is there's a lot of interpersonal aspects to the yeah. work, even though it's a biological intervention. Right. You know, I've I talk with Dr. Polo, he's one of our co-hosts about this all the time, that even the SSRIs and the other medicine that we know has good efficacy, it doesn't change the way the brain works. That's what this kind of face-to-face you know, helping you recognize the patterns and the way you're talking to yourself and your definition of oneself. That's all through the kind of work you have to do in your office. Absolutely. I could do another hour with you on TMS too, because I'm super excited about that, to tell you the truth, for people with really stagnant depression. So I, I want to get back into the book a little bit, because sure. your, your writing is... It's so fun. It's sort of like ER meets uh, some other love story set in Harvard. Love story. Yes, you know, <laughs> because you also at that point meet your wife and she is also a physician and you have these completely different gearings toward recovery and health and what that means. Um, where have you intersected in your belief system about the treatment of people and where do you completely diverge? Uh, between my wife and me. Yeah. My wife and I had the same training initially. She went on to uh, subspecialize in child and adolescent psychiatry. So I think that from like the sort of the technical aspects of the work we do, we probably come at it philosophically in a very similar way. But then I have noticed we, I mean, we have very different interpersonal styles mm -hmm. and I have noticed that she's probably better in some ways at boundary setting at the frame, setting the frame mm -hmm. of the work being within the confines of the office and the clinical messages. And I find that the further out I get from training, the more loose I am about things like the way that we might uh, engage uh, in an email, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, someone might say, whoa, hold that for the next appointment. Right, I might right. just answer the question, you know, yes, kind of yeah, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's, there, there's that new form of acceptance and commitment therapy that's very directed around, let's not waste time with this. Let's set three or four appointments and really get to the core of it and really solve the problem quickly. I'm so for that because I'm like the 10 minute manager, you know, I just want the cliff notes to be able to actually make some behavioral changes. So I totally understand that. I love it. I love that you that you're bringing up ACT because it's not something that I get to do too much in my day to day work, but it's something that I learned about. And I think it's such a wonderful tool, a set oh, of tools, I should say. Same. I mean, it doesn't get nearly as much sort of 
publicity as cognitive behavioral therapy, but I think especially for thinking people, acceptance and commitment therapy is always the one. I always was like, no, you need ABT. <laughs> <laughs> I do it too. So I'm not saying that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. So one of the most vulnerable parts of the book, and as you can see, I read every, every chapter. I really, really enjoyed it is this, you know, you're kind of a new resident, I believe you were a resident at that point, and you were very invested in the well-being of one of your patients. And you returned to the hospital on a night you were supposed to be off. I want you to take people through that event, why it happened, what happened to you, and now in hindsight, so many years later, how you reflect on that. When I think about that time in my life it was shortly after a period when I was working only nights and I was really intensely working at the hospital and uh, that disrupted my sleep cycle and it also made me incredibly invested in the outcomes of the patients that I was seeing in the ER not knowing what happened to them knowing that they would then some of them be admitted to the locked psychiatry unit and wondering well i'll never get to find out did they get better how did they get better and you know are they okay they were so when you when you see people in the er you see them in a certain state which is an emergency state and you don't necessarily see them when they start to get better so i in the book i was unable to fall asleep and i went for a walk around uh, Boston, which becomes a very quiet town uh, after a certain hour. It becomes a, almost spookily, eerily, excuse me, quiet town. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just kept walking and, and I found myself going toward the hospital, the medical center, which was about a mile and a half from where I lived. And, you know, I just sort of followed my instinct to go up to the unit, which, um, you know, it's probably, and in fact, was was then frowned upon by my uh, supervisor. But I, I just felt like I needed to check on some of the people who I had seen and, and make sure that they were okay, because I didn't feel okay myself at that time, at that moment. One of the things I learned in that experience was just how important it is to be able to to some degree, not entirely, but to some degree, compartmentalize your emotional investment in the work you're doing yeah. and be able to have your life separate from that. I think what you show so vulnerably in this writing is that no matter how grounded are, you are, no matter if you've come from a family where you didn't have trauma, no matter what your circumstances, if you go without sleep, you have toxic stress in your life, you have an investment in other people's well-being that you can't actually follow through. You yourself are at risk for developing a mental illness. You're I mean, absolutely I right. I think if there's probably anything that chapter said to me was like, bravo, because it shows you we can all go a little crazy, right? Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, people within the mental health field, uh, people in medicine, people working, like you said, too many hours, artificial light, cafeteria food, even though that's gotten better over the years, it's a recipe for poor mental health, I think. Yeah. You know, there's an enormous suicide rate among healthcare providers. There's a real problem among training programs of the idea of wellness is just starting to gain a foothold within this area, in my opinion. It's become much more real in recent years than it was when I was in training than it was 30 years ago, you know. So I, I think we're moving in the right direction, but it's a major issue. And, and it just brings me to the current day, Adam, that what we're looking at now with healthcare providers in their 18 months of providing what is really like a seventh tour of duty for a person going to war. They're so burned out. So many of them have turned to substances to be able to just keep doing this life-saving work. 
And I feel like, you know, how they talked about the mental health crisis being the long tail of COVID. Imagine what's going to happen to our healthcare workers if and when they ever get a break to be able to actually deal with all of the PTSD and the trauma that they've seen. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you view it, but I'm like, oh, we're going to need healthcare workers for the healthcare workers. I think you're right. I think that there's, there's an interesting dichotomy happening where uh, a lot of people within the healthcare system are becoming morally injured, burnt out, whatever phrase you'd like to apply. And many are leaving the field, not just mental health, beyond mental health, certainly within the hospital, within, you know, uh, ICU staff, nursing, a lot of people are choosing to leave. Well, at the same time, I understand that applications to medical schools are at like an all-time high. Uh, and I think that there is this discrepancy between what the real-life experience has been over this, as you said, this 18-month, so many tours. Every time there's a surge in your area, it becomes another round of this uh, little T trauma kind of thing. Then at the same time, a lot of people, and especially young people, are, as I did, looking up at my father, thinking of here's a profession where you can do good and be sort of uh, rewarded for your efforts and society will respect you. And people are applying to medical school and other, other fields because of that. So there's an interesting sort of split there, I think, happening. Yeah. I was just at a conference of behavioral health care, the sort of the chiefs who sort of run and every hospital in the nation is completely overrun. They don't have enough beds. There isn't enough outpatient services. There's hope that telehealth is going to somehow provide this offload, but people end up finding that in the end, a personal connection with someone is always so much better. So I'm curious where you think we're going to land in the mental health of America post-pandemic. I don't know. Or will we ever be able to say post? I have no idea. That's right. even projecting some optimistic view. Oh my goodness. View, right? I, th I think you're right. I, I'm not sure. You know, that's been almost one of the most disheartening aspects of the last, let's say, six or eight months, yeah. is that every time it feels like we're on the edge of a post-pandemic America, uh, it's you realize this is with us for, for a long time. And so I don't know. I think anyone who, who is sure that they know how it's going to look in, in a few years or five years or 10 years is wrong. But I do think there will be some element of a hybrid system within society, you know, broadly and specifically within mental health care, mm -hmm. where everyone might appreciate that in-person work has to happen uh, in certain circumstances, maybe generally speaking, first uh, appointments or appointments that are more urgent or that there are different criteria that, that will help guide us. Hopefully, the ability to transition to, to telehealth will open up more access to care for more people. That's the ideal. Uh, you know, if, if only we could get more people the option to see I, mental health providers, that would be a good thing. I loved how much you stressed the importance of just that face-to-face, -face, empathetic, open communication with your patients, how much that alone helps them heal. And I'm, I'm thinking there's probably a lot of people listening that don't have the benefit of that. So short of someone like you that can actually take your problems, listen to you, provide advice, what do you tell people to do? I think that we are, you know, social beings. Um, most of us at our core, we are predisposed to needing to connect with people. For some people, a mental health provider is that person. For me, I see a therapist uh, once a week or once every other week sometimes. That's a space where 
I feel like I gain insights to what I'm living through, uh, the world around me, my inner world that I wouldn't have without doing that. But it's not for everyone. And some people don't have the ability to access that kind of care. So for some people, they might find that kind of connection within spirituality or their religious community. They might find it within their family. They might find it within a, uh, a chosen family, you know, uh, the people that they surround themselves with. The biggest challenge is for someone who, who doesn't have access to any of those things that I just listed, because we do need human connection to fulfill our potential as people and feel like we're connected, that we're not in it alone. Yeah. I, um, I also thought it was incredible that you shared that you went through a, a physical crisis of your own. And I just want to just briefly share my my husband went through the mental health system with a horrible outcome. I mean, he was, you know, committed, locked away, brilliant man who was given coloring crayons and nurses work behind bulletproof glass, yeah. just completely dehumanizing experience. And he died by suicide. And my daughter uh, developed leukemia and was given the best doctors with the most incredible bedside manner and uh, experts from around the world who told her that she could recover. And the idea that recovery was always possible. Why is it in psychiatry today that there are still some psychiatrists who do not believe recovery is possible? I think that psychiatrists sometimes, I think your question was why do some psychiatrists not um, sort of connect with that idea about recovery is always yeah. possible? And I think that they should. Um, why <laughs> don't they? Answer. Could you just repeat that loudly for the people in the back? We have a Absolutely. lot of psychiatrists who listen. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I think the idea of recovery is is essential within psychiatry. Now, where I might you know sort of uh, play devil's advocate for a moment is that, like a lot of illnesses, there can be a chronic nature to a lot of psychiatric illnesses. Mm -hmm. So recovery may mean achieving a level of quality of life that is optimized, that yeah. you can be a part of the community, that you can um, live the kind of life that you want for yourself, that your family wants for you. There may or may not always be an opportunity to entirely remove symptoms. Yeah. And that's true if you look at my father's practice in cardiology, uh, a lot of his patients will be dealing with hypertension and cholesterol issues and arrhythmias for the rest of their lives, right? Yeah. So that's true across the board in medicine. Yeah. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that recovery should be ingrained in psychiatry as as something that we should all strive for. Did you find that at all lacking when you saw yourself both as a patient compared with what you might see, especially on locked in patient psychiatric units? Yeah, I think there's something very broken. I'm just going to be very frank. I think there's something very broken about our current psychiatric apparatus within the country and, and globally, probably. I think that you know, the average length of stay for most inpatient psychiatry units is like three to seven days. Mm -hmm. And it's thought of within the field as being a place where stabilization, safety happens, stabilization. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, the idea of a brilliant person being handed crayons to draw with, you know, yeah. and how infuriating and dehumanizing that is. Yeah. And it didn't strike me as at all shocking uh, that that was your family's experience of that environment. Some people are doing amazing work. Some people, their heart is exactly in the right place. And some people probably not, but the apparatus at its core is, is rotten. Uh, I think that, and I'll say that out loud uh, right here and anywhere. Part of the problem I think starts at how we think about 
psychiatry within the medical realm and then carve it out in a little corner of the insurance paradigm and reimburse mental health care. Yeah, it's like we cut the head off and put it over here where it doesn't get funded or interest (laughs) or research. (laughs) And then the rest of the body gets all the big machines and money and fundraisers. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's where it starts. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful that you um, that you came through your battle with cancer because you're clearly such a committed, compassionate healer. And I think if we convinced all psychiatrists to be as open and as honest about the places that aren't working for people, we could really change the entire system, which is what I'm all about. That's why I have this podcast. So yeah, thank you for being an advocate. You know, um, I I totally uh, appreciate what you're saying. And I agree with you. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, people's lives change when they write a book because you have to go out on a tour. I don't know what's happening with COVID, but you have to speak again and again and again about these parts of your life that are hard. And sometimes you're very open in this book. How has the experience been for you to shift from, you know, talking about other people's problems to, oh my gosh, here's my story once again. The most interesting element about that has been when people I work with have read the book and some patients of mine have read the book and some strangers who want to become patients of mine have read the book. Things like that have been really sort of interesting and complicated. And then I have found that it's opened up lots of windows into my own insecurities uh, because for a little while I was checking, you know, Goodreads all the time. And I would say that person's review wasn't fair because, you know, da, 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 da. And I had to catch myself and say, that's not really healthy for you to be doing and feeling that way. And so I think it's given me a certain appreciation for my own self-worth because it has led me to the place where I actually have learned that the book is the book and my story and my writing is, uh, you know, my writing and, and it has value whether or not someone likes it. Um, and that's for them to decide, you know, well, I certainly found an audience with me and with our listeners. I'm certain because we're fascinated by this particular topic. Dr. Adam Stern is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and he's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. I'm going to be in Boston for Thanksgiving, so maybe we'll have coffee, Dr. Stern. (laughs) That'd be great. Thank you so much (laughs) for having me on. The book, once again, Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. We're so, so grateful for all of our sponsors, but this week our gold sponsorship goes to Fora Health and we have done an incredible job with a four-part series on recovery in addiction and substance abuse. Thanks again. Dr. Stern, it's been a blast to talk with you. I really appreciate it.